1: Hello, this is Debbie Sorensen. Today on New Books in Psychology, I am talking with the world-famous developmental psychologist Jerome Kagan about his latest book, which is called The Human Spark, The Science of Human Development. In this book, Professor Kagan looks at some of the really most fascinating and important questions about how we become who we become over the course of our lives and he really takes a hard look at some of the most difficult complex issues in, in developmental psychology and you'll be able to tell from his responses that he's been thinking hard about these issues for, for decades. Um, on a personal note, uh, Professor Kagan was my advisor in my PhD program and I feel very lucky that I was able to study study under someone with such an amazing mind and truly his big picture framework has been really influential for me in terms of how I think about psychology. And I think when you listen to the interview, you'll feel the same way. Hello, Dr. Kagan.
0: Good morning, Debbie.
1: Good morning.
0: Well, I'm
2: really excited to talk to you about your wonderful book. Um, And to start the interview, would you mind just telling the audience a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in human development?
0: Well, let's see. I was an undergraduate at Rutgers University in New Jersey from 1946 to 1950 and I had to decide what to do. I was conflicted between biochemistry and psychology and then uh, I think my heart was in psychology because I was always interested in the human mind ever since I was an adolescent. So when I got an offer to be the research assistant to Frank Beach at Yale, who he was a comparative psychologist. And I was reading Hebb's book, The Organization of Behavior, and Hebb thought Beach was brilliant. So that sold me, and I went to Yale. And although I worked with animals, because that was Beach's specialty, I knew that I was going to be a developmental psychologist. And so I announced that and took my first job at Ohio State when I got my Ph.D. in 54 as a developmentalist. Then the Korean War was on. I was drafted. I was stationed at West Point for two years. Then I went to the Fells Research Institute to direct a big longitudinal project that resulted in Birth to Maturity, which was published in 62. And in 64, Harvard needed Harvard wanted to have a developmental program. They didn't have a Ph.D. program, and so I was lucky enough to be invited to come to Harvard as a professor and build a developmental program, and that's my career.
2: Okay. Well, you've had quite a distinguished one. And um, could you just maybe just tell the audience a couple of your major research interests? And we'll talk more about some of them as we talk about
0: the book. Well, Um, uh, I've had three or four interests. Uh, The project that fells was very important uh, because... It said said two things. It said that personality differences don't form until age five, six, or seven, but that temperamental differences were important because there was a small group of children who were temperamentally different. And so that piqued my interest in early quality. So when I came to Harvard... My first project was to understand what's going on in the first two years of life. And I spent over 15 years studying the cognitive development and the uh, emotional development of children in the opening years. That led to several books, uh, the which I published on the first year of life, the second year of life. So that was my first interest. Uh, then I had a sabbatical and I wanted to find out what it was like to grow up in a very primitive village without radio, television without schools and I was lucky enough uh, it's too long a story but I ended up studying development in a tiny village in northwest Guatemala of Mayan Indians Uh and the village was on the Lake Atitlan, And that was an epiphany for me because there I saw infants who were kept in the hut for the first year because parents were afraid of the evil eye and as a result, they were very retarded. But once they left the hut, they quickly caught up. Now that was, so that led me to respect biology more than I had. But it was unpopular in the United States because American psychologists were saying that if the first year of life is depriving, then you're doomed for the rest of your life. And that's the message they promoted. So what I had observed in Guatemala was politically incorrect, and people were angry when I published papers saying that it is possible because of the maturation of the brain for children who do have a depriving first year, even as long as they're not brain damaged, to catch up, and that turned out to be true, but it was not popular at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. My third interest was be was supportive of that because uh, in the seventies there was talk that perhaps we, the government should fund daycare centers because many more American women were going to work. Of course, it never happened, but there was a fear that maybe daycare for infants wasn't a good idea. It turns out it's perfectly okay, but we didn't know that. So with Richard Kiersley and Phil Zalazzo, we ran a very important daycare project in Boston, And what we found was that good quality daycare had no effect, but a child's temperament was very important because half our children were Chinese-American and half were Caucasian, white children. And the big difference was between the Chinese infants and the white infants. And that promulgated my interest in my final theme, which was temperament, which I've been studying since, I guess, the early 1980s and that takes you to the present.
2: Great. Yeah, and certainly made a lot of major contributions. So, um so to just turn our attention to this current book that we're talking about today, The Human Spark. So this is a really expansive and really interesting book, and you um, draw from decades of developmental research as well as biology, neuroscience, literature, um, which is really great. And I was just wondering if you could maybe tell us sort of an overview of the question that you're, you were looking at with this book.
0: Well, uh, in 1984, I published The Nature of the Child, and at that time, it was a little bit novel, not much, a little bit novel to suggest that the biology of the child was important. Now, the biology meant two things, namely that as as the brain matures, the human brain Children change, and they can't help changing because of the maturation of the nervous system. Now, today, that's not a new idea. But in 1980, it was a new idea. And and I used that book, which became popular, to talk about what we knew about emotion and intellectual development and morality, and it had a strong biological flavor to it. Now, uh About two and a half years ago, I thought of revising it, and basic books agreed that it should be revised. But as I thought about it, then I had so much had happened in the past 27 years that it's essentially a new book, and that's why it has a new title. And so if you want to ask me, what was I thinking about? I was thinking about this. I've done a lot of work. Since I got my Ph.D. in 1954, I've read broadly. And so I was going to write about everything I knew or thought I knew about human nature, both what is common to all humans as well as the factors that produce variation or differences. And that's what the human spark is. It's organized, the first part is is longitudinal, so that I discuss the first year, the second year, then I get topical and talk about the role of the family, the role of history and culture, and then I deal with three themes I've thought a lot about. Human morality, what is it? How do we understand human morality? Human emotions, Uh, mental illness, Uh, what is preserved and what is not preserved as far as personality traits are concerned, and finally, the last chapter is a list of suggestions for how we can move forward and improve our understanding of human development. So that Mm -hmm. is a brief overview of the book.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
0: great. Well, I loved,
2: you used at one point in the book this this metaphor of a pinball machine for yeah. development, and to me that sort of captured one of the major themes of the book. Uh, would you mind
0: telling us that? Right. Uh, you see, I don't think that either parents or some psychologists appreciate that the development of a human being which is much more complicated than the development of an animal, is a function not just of the temperament in which you're born. Well, the analogy of the pinball machine is, is is this. Here are all these pinballs at the top of the machine, and then the bottom of the machine is you know what you're going to be like as you approach old age. And then the obstacles in the pinball machine are all the unpredictable settings and contexts and chance events, which are not predictable. The day you're born, you can't know what teachers you're going to encounter, what temptations you will encounter. I once, what lucky breaks you're going to encounter. Uh, I once sat down and said, I wouldn't. My whole career. Where I am now required six absolutely unpredictable events, which no one could have predicted when I was 15, 16, or 17 years old. Okay, so the pinball machine is the the size and weight of the balls represent your temperament. That is, the biological qualities you're born with, your location at the top of the pinball machine, represent your social class. The book says a lot about the power of social class, mm-hmm. your culture, and the historical setting in which you were born. Had I been born with the same biology, but born in 1700, I would have been a very different person than the one who was born in 1929. So location is stands for class, culture, and history. And finally, the obstacles in the machine are all the unpredictable events, settings, that that the child encounters, and that is why it is very difficult to look at a young child and predict what they're going to be like when they're 30, 40, or 50 years of age. That's the pinball metaphor.
2: Absolutely. So many complex factors, and I think one thing that that's great in your book is that you don't try to oversimplify it, you know, you go through many of these factors and just kind of the, the state of the research where it is now, um, which of course we have a long way to go, but it's a very complex um, issue when you're studying development. So,
1: right.
2: yeah. So in the start of the book you talk about um, the importance of context and make some really important points about that. Can you give us maybe some examples of how social context influences development? Right.
0: Now, context Context has three different meanings. For the scientist, it means what is the setting in which the subject is being observed? So, you put a child in a laboratory facing an unfamiliar adult who is the examiner, and the examiner is showing the the person pictures on a screen that's a context and what the child does in that setting doesn't mean that that's what the child would do in a very different setting and there are so and I quote many places in the literature where people have shown that what, what a child does in one particular setting doesn't mean that that's how he would behave in a different setting but uh, even something as simple as the nature of the drawing, whether it's, whether it's three, whether the child sees pictures or three-dimensional objects, that influences how the infant, the infant's pattern of attention. Uh, there's a long section on the errors that neuroscientists are making. For example, there's a study quoted in the book where a neuroscientist puts a uh, a man in a magnetic scanner is going to measure blood flow and the man's wife or lover masturbates him to orgasm and then he studies what the pattern of blood flow is while this guy is lying in a narrow tube and the scientists concluded that that is the pattern that would occur if this man were home with his wife having sex in their bedroom now that's absurd right i mean how can you generalize Mm -hmm. from this artificial setting in a laboratory where people are watching you to the privacy of your bedroom so the setting is very important and although biologists are sensitive to that for example you have to have a very special uh chemical background if you want your stem cells to grow and, and Nobel Prizes are awarded for the biologists who can figure out what the right chemical environment is for a stem cell to grow. But psychologists are tend to be indifferent to the setting. So they they bring in 20 college students and expose them to one particular kind of stimulus, and they assume that that is what would happen no matter what the stimulus was. And, of course, we know that that's an error. So the indifference to setting by psychologists, not just child psychologists, is a very serious problem. Mm -hmm. The second meaning of context is is the historian's or the sociologist's meaning, and that is, so where are you growing up? The social class in which you grow up is a context. To grow up, in a ghetto in Pittsburgh is very different from growing up in a small town in New Hampshire or Maine, even though you're the same child, living mm-hmm. with the same parents, so that social contexts are profound. That's why, for example, uh certain cities have high homicide rates and other cities of the same size have low homicide rates indeed indeed the probability of being diagnosed ADHD is twice as an hour is twice as prevalent east of the mississippi than west of the mississippi i mean that's ridiculous in other words the likelihood that you will be diagnosed ADHD if you're a child is 15% in North Carolina, it's 5% in Nevada. Well, obviously, that means that there are biases among the doctors who are seeing children west of the Mississippi versus east of the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, of course, cultures differ. The culture, even even among contemporary nations, the culture of Germany is much more authoritarian than the culture of England. And America... America and England are probably the most egalitarian societies compared with the cultures, let's say, of the MidEast. So there are three different meanings: the, the scientist's meaning, the historian's meaning and the, and the cultural meaning. But they're mm-hmm. all they all say the same thing, namely, the setting in which the animal or the human is operating is powerful. Because at any one moment, there is more than one behavior that could occur. There's an envelope of behaviors, and the setting you're in will select which one. So the setting is the hand that picks one alternative from a set of possibilities.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the – If back to the pinball – metaphor. Right. It's one of the different paths that will exactly. influence the outcome. Yeah. Exactly. And along those lines, you know, the this issue of social class, as you mentioned earlier, that's something that comes up a lot in the book, and I, to me it seems like such an important factor and, and, and I think somewhat minimized a lot of times. Um, could you just talk a little bit about social class and right. how that, why right. that matters so much?
0: Yes. Uh, in In the past, the deep past, your life was determined by the family in which you were born. Uh, Were you born to an aristocratic family? Were you born to a small businessman? Were you born to a peasant? And 90% of the children then remained in the class in which they were born. Now, the nice thing that happened with history was... We got rid of these fixed castes, and we thought we got rid of class. Now, the modern West, that means Western Europe and North America, want to believe, they would like to believe, that the class in which you are born is irrelevant because they think they're a free and egalitarian society that has opportunities for all. It turns out that that belief is not exactly correct, because in the first half of the 20th century, yes, there was, it was much easier for a poor child to rise in social status, in part because the economy was growing and there was a lot of need for professionals. But 100 years later, the slots have been filled. We have many more educated in 2013 than we had in 1913. And so now there are many, many more applicants than there are positions that are high in the occupational pyramid. As a result, and if you add to that the deterioration of the urban schools, which are much uh, less adequate than they were when I was a child... Now it turns out, sociologists tell us, it is very hard for a child who is born to a poor family to rise in social status. So we have an unequal society and I mean the newspapers are full of this and so are the television programs telling everybody that it's much harder to rise in status and we have increasing inequalities. Even President Obama talks about this. Now, why is that important? It's important because if you're born to poor parents, by the time you're 8 or 9 years old, you realize that it's going to be tough. You realize that the poor are exploited. You realize that there's more illness in your family. You realize that there's more worry about money. You realize you live in a poor neighborhood, and you develop a set of beliefs and emotions that are different from the child who's born to a family that makes three or four hundred thousand dollars a year and lives in a nice uh, neighborhood and knows that they're going to go to a good college. The the latter child is more optimistic, has a greater sense of agency, feels he or she is in control, and has a different set of values. So... Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, as I say in the book, the best predictor right now, August of 2013, of who will come down with diabetes, heart attack, or stroke, who will develop anxiety, depression, or a substance abuse disorder, who will be arrested for a crime, who will be a high school dropout, the best predictor of all of those is the class in which you were born, no set of genes even comes close. And yet, scientists are studying genes and the amount of money, being research money, being spent on this question. Why is it that the experiences of a child born to either poor or affluent parents creates this difference? Very little money is spent on that, and that is... Hard to understand, since class is the best predictor of the outcomes that both parents and congressmen worry about. So that's a paradox. That's really,
2: I think, a good point. Just how pervasive and important that is, and how poorly understood it is in terms of the process of how those those outcomes end right. up being so different. So, so maybe I'll turn our conversation a little bit. Um, one. One chapter in the book is about the infant cognition and sort of the early infancy, and it's been really a big area in developmental research in in recent years. And I was wondering if you could talk maybe about some of your criticisms of the infant cognition research and and some of the claims that have been made.
0: Okay, there are two points. Uh, There are two issues of controversy to be resolved And they're not yet resolved. So before I make these comments, it's important to understand that I'm not claiming I'm right. I just have a position. Mm -hmm. So here, here are the points of controversy. The first is just how abstract is the child's knowledge? That's the first point of controversy. I'm talking about the infant now, up to about... 12 or 13 months before language Mm -hmm. comes in. Okay. Yeah. In the first year, how abstract is the child's knowledge? And second, how would you know? So let's talk about the first, my own view, which is shared with Marshall Haith, uh, and Leslie Cohen and other, uh, investigators of infancy is that the child has perceptual abilities the child can detect the difference between two pennies and four pennies. But that does not mean that the child has a concept of number, because number is a semantic concept. And so the controversy is that some psychologists have claimed that the fact that, the, that an infant can tell the difference between two pennies and four pennies That means that the child has a concept of number because we as adults say that, use the the terms two and four. But I'm claiming that that does not mean that the child has a concept of number because the concept of number means that you understand that four is greater than two. I'm saying the infant doesn't understand that at all. That these numbers can be added or divided or multiplied, and the infant doesn't understand at all. So that uh, the analogy would be that a child, who uh, an infant could tell the difference between human between human speech and white noise, but that doesn't mean that the child understands that it's speech. Right? Because that's an abstract semantic concept. Mm -hmm. For the child, the the infant could discriminate between Mozart and hip-hop. But that doesn't mean the child has the concept of classical music versus modern music. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's a confusion. So that's the first point of controversy. The second is, well, how do you know what the child knows? And unfortunately... 99% of the research only uses one measure, and that is how long the infant looks at one of two events. And I claim in the book that you must look at more than one measure, and I quote studies by Mark Bornstein, who works at NIH, showing that if you look at more than one measure, like facial expression or vocalization or event-related potentials, then, when you combine that with looking time, you come to different conclusions. Hmm. And the book makes the point that it is always dangerous to rely on only one measure in order to assess something as complicated as what infants know. Uh, And that is a problem with not just research on infants. If you go to any psychological journal, pick up any journal. And read the articles at random, and you'll see that the vast majority of articles use one measure. Cortisol concentration in the saliva, or heart rate variability, or the response to the Big Five questionnaire, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Well, no biologist would operate that way. And you wouldn't want your doctor, if you have an odd symptom, to only use one measure, to only to only measure your blood and not take any x-rays or not measure uh, the molecules in your urine right? you would be very suspicious of a doctor who arrived at a diagnosis based on only one measure and so we should be suspicious as scientists of conclusions that are based on one measure and that's a problem with the research uh, on what infants know because most of the time the only measure is the duration of looking. Mhm.
2: And then there's a lot of inference made by that what 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 exactly that means. Right. Yeah. Now, and and then if we move a little bit later in development into the second year of life, there are a lot of important abilities that start to emerge at about the same life right. at the same time and I know this is something you've studied Quite a lot. Um, could you tell us about some of the important developments in the second year and what, what's going on that they all sort of emerge at once?
0: Right. One of the, although everybody's aware of this, few people have written about it and that it surprises me. And it is this, that between 14 and 24 months, which is uh, only, a, or even less, 14 and 20 months, in that six-month period, Almost every child in the world, no matter where they live, suddenly seems displays four psychological properties. number one, they now make inferences about what other people might be feeling or what might or what they might be thinking. so now infants will uh, if a mother Shows pain in her face and says, "I "Ooh, I feel I, I hurt myself." The child will show an empathic response on their face. They're making an inference that the mother is in pain. Uh, they'll infer if the mother if they hear the mother come in the room, they will infer that perhaps she's bringing the child some food. Infants under one year don't make inferences. now. So inferences are really important, and they are, of course, the basis for empathy. The second uh, property is now children will begin to speak. And, of course, their understanding improves dramatically between 20 and 24 months. And you will notice that inference is important here because... The child now infers that when the mother is talking to them, the mother or the father is trying to communicate information. So that inference makes a major contribution to the great progress in language that occurs in the second year of life. The third important uh, new property is unique to humans, and that is now children understand the difference between right and wrong. They know that spilling food is wrong. They know that hitting is wrong. They know that making noise at the dinner table is wrong and so on. And so the notions of good and bad emerge at this time. And these are notions that no animal is capable of understanding. And so I say in the book that this is when a moral sense emerges and the role of the culture and the family is to fill that vessel because all two-year-olds know morally is that it's wrong to hurt people because they have the capacity of empathy, but they don't know that making mistakes on a test is wrong. They don't know that adultery is wrong. Uh, They don't know that sexual curiosity is wrong. So they have to be taught that, and that's the role of their culture. Cultures fill the moral vessel by telling children what it is that's wrong or right, and that's why cultures differ in what the moral values are. And, of course, the fourth property is what neuroscientists call consciousness or what I call self-awareness. I'm claiming that infants under one year are not aware of their intentions so that when a six-month-old reaches for a cookie, his reach is accurate, but he or she is not aware that they're reaching. Mm -hmm. They feel pain, but they are not conscious of the pain. There's a difference. A rat feels pain if you pinch its tail. But a rat is not conscious of the pain. I know that's subtle, but it's quite, Mm -hmm. but consciousness Mm -hmm. is very different. Consciousness involves an awareness that things are happening to you as an individual. And that's what infants and animals don't have. Now, on the surface, these four look very different. Consciousness, a moral sense, language and inference, then why do they occur all at the same time? And I'm suggesting that one reason, this is not the only reason, is that it is at this time that the connections between the right and left hemisphere are enhanced, they're potentiated, because in the layer of the cortex that connects the right and left hemisphere, the neurons in that layer grow in the beginning of the second year, allowing a more efficient connectivity between the right and left hemisphere. And the book argues that that is a very important event that would contribute to the four properties of language inference, a moral sense, and Mm -hmm. Mm self-awareness.
2: Well, on sort of a personal note, note, my child is in this stage right yeah. at the moment, and it's pretty cool to watch it all starting to happen, and and after all those years of studying developmental psychology, it's pretty amazing to just watch the process unfold.
0: And are you seeing some of this now?
2: Absolutely. I mean, she's starting to talk. You know, she knows quite a few words and is starting to, you know, we'll tell her no about something that she's doing, and she's kind of testing that out a little bit or trying to understand what that means. And, right. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect.
0: yeah, it's really right on cool. T- right on time.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the, um, you know, actually, as you were my advisor in graduate school, one of the things that really stuck with me um, when we used to talk about issues is um, your views on attachment theory and some of the, you know, you've been a critic of some of the extreme claims that some of the attachment researchers have made. What do you think is, is the problem there in terms of
0: attachment okay. research? That's a good question. Here we go. Uh, John Bowlby made a very important statement when he claimed back in the 50s that in the interaction between infants and their caretakers, an emotional bond is established. And he called that bond attachment and he said that it would—it probably varies in its quality, and that is correct. Very good. I have no quarrels with that. But then he went further and made the claim that the security or insecurity of that bond would last forever. And an infant who had an insecure attachment would be prone to anxiety or depression or psychological problems when they were 20 years old. And there, the research does not support him. So now, we have to ask, well, why do I say that? Because when Bowlby made that statement, he had no... It was a guess. He had no proof of that. And here's the note of the controversy. Then his student, Mary Ainsworth made what she thought was an important discovery. She invented the strange situation and she claimed that how the one year old behaved in the strange situation, that was a measure of the security of the child's attachment. Now if that were true, that would be a great discovery. Now what is the strange situation? A infant, a one year old infant and its mother or father come to an unfamiliar room in a laboratory. It's important that it's unfamiliar. And there are seven or eight episodes, but there are only two episodes that are important. In one episode, the mother gets up, doesn't say anything and suddenly leaves the room, leaving the infant with a stranger. Now that's a very unusual and discrepant event. And she returns three minutes later In another episode, she also gets up without saying anything, leaving the room, and she leaves this infant alone. No one's in the room. Now, that's a very discrepant situation that a one-year-old doesn't understand. Now, Ainsworth claimed that if a child cried a lot when the mother left and when the mother returned could not be sued that the child continued to sob and cry despite the mother's attempt that must mean that the child is insecurely attached because if the child was securely attached the mother should be able to quiet him and the other reaction is a child who doesn't cry when the mother leaves and therefore the child ignores the mother when she returns, and so Ainsworth argued that, well, gee, a mother, a child who doesn't care about the mother's leaving, that child must be insecurely attached. Now, if that were right, that would be very important, but it turns out that the child's temperament, nothing to do with the relation with the mother, makes a very important contribution to those two reactions. The children we study, who I describe in the book, call High Reactive Infants, they are easily, they have a low threshold for becoming very upset for things they don't understand. So when your mother gets up and leaves the room without saying when she's coming back, if you have this temperament, you, you become intensely frightened. You cry and you're so upset. It is difficult for your mother to soothe you. So the reason why you behave this way is not because you're insecurely attached, it's because of your temperament. Similarly, There are a large group of infants who just aren't bothered by mild discrepancies. They're fearless infants, and so they don't cry when their mother leaves, and therefore they're not upset, and they don't go to her when she returns. But it's their temperament that causes them to behave this way. It's not, because they're insecurely attached. Therefore, since we don't have a sensitive measure of attachment, it's not possible for us to say anything about whether Bowlby's right or not. And my own view is that your your personality at at the end of the first year, as long as you're not severely abused physically or sexually or sitting in a deprived orphanage, in Romania, as long as you don't have those extreme conditions, and that's true for about 99% of all the world's children, that what you're like at one year is a very poor predictor of what you're going to be like at 10, 15, or 20 years of age. That's what the research shows. That's, that's the pinball machine metaphor. And therefore, Bowlby's prediction is not right. It's incorrect. And, uh, therefore, the attachment situation at the end of the first year of life is not a good predictor of your future personality or your likelihood of having personality problems. And to go back to social class, the best predictor of who's going to be depressed or anxious at age 20 is not how you behaved in a strange situation at one year. It's the social class in which you were born. Mm-hmm. So that's my comment about attachment. Well, and and in general,
2: you know, attachment is one one aspect of this. But you you write a lot about this question of which aspects of early experience are preserved, because I think we assume that those first you know couple of months, couple of years are. Absolutely critical, and that right. the experience that the the infant has early right. on stays. So, what's your opinion about that? Well,
0: that there's a long section in the book that the West, not other cultures, that the West is really obsessed with the first years of life, and I don't understand all the reasons for this. Seventeenth uh, century ministers in New England would in their Sunday sermons tell the congregation that what happens in the first year of life sets the stage for the rest of your life now of course they had no evidence for saying that so why did they say that and I think part of it is to make mothers responsible that is we want to believe that a good beginning means a good ending and to warn mothers that they better worry about what they do in the first year, that, there, that there's a strong need to believe in that, and that's one contribution to this obsession with the beginning. I also suggest in the book that the West has been heavily influenced by the Judeo-Christian ethic, or Judeo-Christian philosophy, and notice what is the key idea, in that philosophy it was that there was a beginning the old testament says and god created heaven and earth that there was a moment in the beginning and in the first 7 days he makes all the, god makes all the animals makes the earth and that's it so i do believe that that image of a beginning that sets the stage for everything else hangs around and has influenced in some way this obsession with what happens in the first year or two of life. And I think Mm -hmm. that that is exaggerated, and it certainly does not fit the evidence.
2: Yeah, I've been pretty shocked as a, you know, moving into parenting mode in the last few years, how I, I there must, people must be selling books left and right or something, but just how much people are overstating this and, and selling books to parents, websites to parents, um, just really, um, you know, making that assumption to an extreme and telling people, well, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. And right. as someone with a developmental background, it just makes me a little crazy. Right how overstated that is. So I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit about some of these ideas you have about the huge rise in mental health diagnosis in recent years? Why is this phenomenon happening?
0: In mental illness? Yeah, mental illness. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I think several things happen. The first is this. Thanks to biological discoveries in medicine, in modern societies, we don't have to worry about diphtheria, pneumonia, tuberculosis, uh, polio, and all the other infectious afflictions that killed people. I mean, remember in 1800s, the expected lifespan was about 40 years of age. So, when, once, so people worried about getting physically ill and dying, and you didn't worry about whether you were a little depressed because you lost some money or a little anxious because of a storm. When well, we got rid of worry over these physical illnesses in the opening years, opening, you know, 40 years of life, well, then we because humans then then the psychological things ascended because they were unimportant something i got to worry about something so now we began to worry about hey maybe people shouldn't be anxious but anxiety over losing your job and guilt over hurting a friend depression because you lost your spouse those are normal human reactions that have been present in humans ever since we emerged as a species, and suddenly the medical profession, namely psychiatry, medicalized these and called them illnesses. Now, I'm not the only one to say this. Alan Francis, a respected psychiatrist at Duke, has written a book called Saving Normal, which everyone should read, in which he is severely harsh, with psychiatrists for making normal human reactions, mental illnesses. He and I agree. There is a small group of people who do have a mental illness. They have a severe depression. It lasts a long time. It is debilitating. Or a very severe post-traumatic stress disorder, yes. But this is a small proportion of the population. It's not. The claim that 25% of Americans are mentally ill because they had a bout of anxiety or a bout of depression. Now, the second reason this has taken hold is because there are medicines, and whenever there's a medicine, doctors diagnose a disease. When there's no medicine, you don't diagnose the disease. So since there are all these pills around, doctors felt freer, to say yes you have an anxiety disorder or yes you have a depressive disorder and so that's the second reason uh, part of a collaboration between the pharmaceutical industry and psychiatrists and those are the two major reasons why we have these claims that we have an epidemic of mental illness because Mm -hmm. we've lowered the bar i mean if we said for example that Anybody who can't uh, run a mile in five in five minutes has a physical disorder. Then suddenly we would have half the population that had a physical a physical endurance disorder. Mm-hmm. We, we, so we've changed the criteria. The third problem is that there's an indifference to what the cause is. Psychiatry is the only medical profession in which the the diagnosis is based only on the symptoms, not the cause. No, no cardiologist, no oncologist, uh, no internal medicine physician would diagnose just on the symptoms. We have terms like malaria. Malaria doesn't mean fever. Malaria means you're infected with the malarial parasite, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, that's the problem that we have categories that don't tell you anything about the cause. And the problem is that every diagnosis in psychiatry is heterogeneous as to cause. So that there are some people who are depressed because, in fact, they did inherit the genes that put them at risk for depression. But most people who are depressed happen to come from families who are poor or have a lot of illness in the family. There's a very high correlation between having a physical illness like diabetes, high blood pressure, and being depressed. Well, my God, being depressed because because you have diabetes, that's normal. Being depressed because you inherited the genes that put you at risk, that's a very different depression, and yet all of these causes are being put into one category called depression as if it were a unitary disease like malaria, when in fact it's not. So those are the problems. And I'm not alone. As you and anybody who reads the newspapers knows, there have been great criticisms of DSM-5, the latest manual, which was published this year by many distinguished psychologists and psychiatrists who are very unhappy with the continuation of this model, where you where the diagnoses are only based on the symptoms, uh, and yeah, it's even
2: more symptom based and more pathologizing. Each right. new revision of the DSM.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Notice, I mean, the joke here's the biggest joke. Men after age fifty are losing sex hormone because they're losing sex hormone naturally it is harder for them to maintain an erection. That's part of growing older. Yet, this is now called erectile disorder. Notice we we, we had the name disorder. Well, this is absurd. It's not a disorder. Growing old is not a disorder. It's part of nature. <laughs> and, that's what, and that's what we're... And that, I mean, for example, a woman who does not have orgasm every time she has sex with her husband she suddenly has a disorder. This is absurd.
2: Well, I think you're right. There's a big industry here with pills to
0: sell people, so therefore now we have disorders left and right. As I say in the book, American psychiatry is getting very close to composing its own list of Ten Commandments, which are religious religious and moral. It's a religious and a moral document. It's not a scientific document. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and some of
2: this really does apply to children as well because that's an area where there's been a huge rise and as a developmental psychologist, you have concerns about the the rise of medicating and diagnosing young people? I do.
0: I do. I mean, uh one of the most serious problems was to was to say about children who had temper tantrums and couldn't be controlled that they had bipolar disease. That was a serious problem and then the doctors who didn't understand then prescribing the medicine you give to adult bipolar patients to four and five year old children. Uh, we actually had a death here in Boston of a mother who overdosed her child uh, with adult medicines, and uh, both and the mother was actually brought into court for a man on a manslaughter cause. So, yes we're we're over diagnosing ADHD there are children who are just inattentive and not motivated they don't necessarily have the core symptoms of attention deficit hyperactive disorder we're misapplying bipolar disorder we're misapplying a whole set of disorders and one of the more serious problems was is the concept of autistic spectrum mm-hmm. uh there's no epidemic of autism. What, we, what, we, what we've done, what psychiatrists have done, is to take, there are probably 50 or 60 different reasons why a child might have serious language retardation and serious problems in social interaction. Those are the two symptoms of autism. So there are 50 different ways you could produce that. By damaging the brain, not necessarily by experience, by damaging the brain. The brain can be damaged in many different ways. And what doctors have done is to take all those different reasons and say, well, this is all autism, but it's just, it's on a spectrum. Well, to go back to my earlier example, that would be like saying, if you can't run, no matter what the reason, you broke your leg, uh, you have polio, uh, you have an infection of your legs and so on and we pull all that and we say this is locomotor disorder this is the locomotor spectrum Mm -hmm. people would laugh and they should laugh at the concept of the autistic spectrum and so one of the most serious myths being perpetrated on the public is to say that we have an epidemic of autism because now one in every hundred children gets this diagnosis. This is just a diagnostic error on the part of the physician. And what yeah. we have are a large number of very different diseases. And we're going to have to find the cause for each one of those children.
2: Right, right. Big big job at hand for people who are interested. Absolutely. In Yeah. Well, you know, there's so much more in the book, and I hope that people who are listening who are interested in this will will read the book because there's a lot that we didn't quite get to. But, um, you know, as we're kind of wrapping up in the last few minutes here... Um, so, Jerry, as a parent myself, I really just loved the section. You had this really brief two-page section with a few just ideas that you have for parents. And, of course, you have all these caveats about how it's just your opinion. But could you just maybe give us a couple of main messages that you think are important to, to parents and other people who interact with children? Um,
0: okay. Based let me on your see knowledge if, I can of do this, if I can do this briefly. First, Okay. <laughs> in the first two years of life, your child needs predictability, and stimulation. Talk to your child, read to your child, be affectionate to your child. In the next two or three years, the child needs to know what's right and wrong, and the child needs to be persuaded that you as a parent value him or her. Now, you can do that in very different ways. Some can do it through embraces, some through fancy gifts, some through playing with your child. The culture will tell you The culture helps you understand how you persuade your child that you value that child. As the child becomes ready for school, now it's time to encourage and make sure that the child is motivated for good school performance because that happens to be necessary in this particular culture during this historical era and probably for a long time. And finally, as your child approaches adolescence, because our culture requires youth to become autonomous and independent. You now have to let go of the reins and give your child more freedom than you did before. But being always there and letting your adolescent know that you are there in case your adolescent needs you for help. Uh, now, that's no guarantee, but... If you follow that ritual, then the odds are better that your child will end up in their twenties and thirties better adapted and happier than if not
2: well, thank you. I know it's it's you have so much knowledge and just decades of of research on this topic to to boil it all down to a nutshell like that is is a challenge, so thank you. Um, so what what do you have ahead? What are you working on now, and and what are your plans? Do you have any more books on the horizon
0: or well, anything I like needed, that, Jerry? I, I needed something to do, and I looked. I was looking back in my study, and I saw Montaigne's essays in the 16th century. Michel de Montaigne retired to his the chateau he inherited from his father and just wrote on things he was interested in. And so I am writing a series of non-technical essays, no jargon, no fancy equations, and I'm writing on the things that I think a lot of educated humans are interested in. I'm writing on what does it mean to know. I'm writing, I have an essay called on marriage. What's marriage about? Very little wisdom is written about marriage and so far I've written about a dozen essays and I'm gonna just continue this until I feel uh I've got a good body and then I'll show it to somebody. I may send them to you and see what you think. Well, I would
2: love to read them and I just I just respect your brilliant, curious mind that just you know, never seems to end with great ideas. <laughs> thank, thank so. you. So thank you, Jerry. Thank you so much for talking with me today about your work. And we look forward to reading this,
1: uh, these essays. Thank
0: you, Debbie. Thank you. This is Debbie
1: Sorensen. You've been listening to an interview with Professor Jerome Kagan about his book, The Human Spark, The Science of Human Development. Thank you for listening to new books in psychology.